Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Cultivate Co-op podcast. On this episode, you're going to hear from Mark Ostreicher. Marco is a veteran youth worker and is leading the youth cartel, providing a variety of resources, coaching, and consultation to youth workers, churches, and ministries. Marco lives in San Diego with his wife and has two grown children. This episode took place at our first ever youth ministry conference. Let's get into it. There we go. Hey. I feel effectively bumped. That's good. Um, man, I just love being in a room of uh, people who care about teenagers. I've uh, been doing this for 42 years. And uh, like Ashley, actually, junior high is my jam. I'm a seventh grade boys small group leader at my church where I've been a volunteer for the last 25 years um, in a row. So um, we're going to talk today, uh, uh, this morning, we're going to talk a little bit about brains. Uh, let's see, maybe the thing we should talk about first is kind of a precursor thing. Um, I'm going to show you this slide at the beginning of my afternoon talk also. Adolescence is both a developmental reality and a cultural phenomenon. There is a pervasive myth in our culture, uh, particularly, I mean, really, it's almost universal, this myth, that adolescence is brand new, meaning like 100 years old, uh, and that it didn't it used to exist. There only used to be child, uh, childhood and adulthood, uh, and I even taught this because I'd been taught it. There were two stages of life, childhood and adulthood, and every culture everywhere in the world had a rite of passage to mark the trans that transition. There's, I don't know, maybe kind of some quasi-truth in that, but the reality is adolescence has always existed. In fact, I would frame it as one of God's loving and intentional cre uh, elements of creation. There have always been people who are struggling with the developmental realities of the transition between childhood and adulthood, right? That's always been. Um, what's newer is the cultural phenomenon. And that's only about uh, 75 years old. We're going to talk about that this afternoon. So this morning, I want to kind of focus in on uh, understanding this developmental reality and specifically some things. Oh, no wonder I'm pushing the laser button. I just saw it on you. I thought it was, that's my bad. <laughs> I happened to push the laser button and see it on your chest. And I was <laughs> Don't worry, I don't, I don't have a sight or a scope or whatever it is you call it. Um, so I, I want to talk a little bit about brains, but to get there, let's talk about these five areas of change that all teenagers are dealing with. Physical change, cognitive or intellectual change, emotional change, relational change, and spiritual change. Now, the, the physical change is kind of obvious. You know about that one. But I, I want to spend just a moment on the cognitive or intellectual change because it explains so much about why teenagers act the way they do, why they are so unique. So basically what's happening is as the brain develops through childhood and through adolescence, it goes through several stages of how it processes information and how it understands what's true. The last of those changes comes with the onset of puberty. So it's a little hard for you and I at our ages to think of like our having our brains completely rewired. I don't mean just a, an epiphany or a, a new understanding, but a whole new way of thinking because we've been thinking with our brains wired the same way since puberty, but for 
today's teenagers, uh, that's a new ability. And the simplest way of thinking about it is, we could get all complex here, but just to simplify it, it's the addition of abstract thinking. It, it, it is moving from a limitation, let's say it, in the preteen years of concrete and black and white thinking to be able to think abstractly. Now, what is abstract thinking? It's thinking about thinking, which could make your brain melt, right? It, it is, uh, it, it's got two giant implications. This is maybe the best way to understand abstract thinking. It allows for speculation, which is wrestling with what if and why questions. And it allows for third-person perspective, which is seeing yourself from somebody else's point of view, or even considering an idea from somebody else's point of view. Those two realities, speculation and third-person perspective, that explains the, like think of it this way, an 11-year-old kid who cannot speculate or does not have the ability to perceive themselves from somebody else's point of view and now suddenly, they have this ability. Think how that would change everything. This is why, in a very simple way, a boiled down way, this is why teenagers act the way they do. Why they struggle with the things they struggle with. This is why the other three areas of change are there. Emotional change in teenagers and the fact that their emotions seem so volatile sometimes and unpredictable, it's there because of the onset of abstract thinking and the fact that kids are now perceiving them from somebody else's point of view. They're speculating, often poorly, by the way, uh, exercising that what if and why, because that speculation muscle takes years to develop. And most of them are not very good at it. The capacity is there but they're not very good at it. Relationally, you see teenagers swapping out friendships and trying new uh, relationships and struggling with some. It's because they suddenly have the capacity to perceive themselves from somebody else's point of view. That dramatically changed relationships. And spiritually, they're starting to wrestle with, be able to wrestle with what if and why questions, which suddenly introduces doubt, which, by the way, is not the opposite of faith. Doubt is, I would suggest to you, a necessary, God-intended developmental norm of the teenage years and critical to their faith development. What's really dangerous is unexamined doubt. And this is where you and I play such a critical role. So spiritual questions are there because of the onset of abstract thinking. Um, I have a question that I like to ask youth workers these days, and I'm gonna ask it this morning and I'm gonna ask it again this afternoon. I, of the time that I have with you, I'm sure Stuart and Ashley will say more important things, but this is the most important thing I'm gonna say, and it's in the form of a question. Do you see teenagers as a problem to be solved or as a wonder to behold. I would suggest to you that the vast majority of Mer Americans, probably the vast majority of the world, but certainly the vast majority of Americans see teenagers as a problem to be solved. Even the vast majority of churches see teenagers as a problem to be solved. Even at least a simple majority of youth workers see them as a problem to be solved. And I have a theological problem with that. 
If we say that God lovingly and intentionally created them, including the messy and beautiful transition from childhood to adulthood that we now refer to as adolescence, it's actually been referred to that way for well over a thousand years. Um, so there, if we believe that God lovingly and intentionally intended a transition to occur that we now call adolescence or the teenage years, then we, we must see them as a wonder to behold. And when we do, it really changes our approach to them. And I want you to hold that in mind while I tell you about three more quick things that are newer in our learning about uh, teenage brains. Because if you view these new things through a problem-to-be-solved perspective, you will come to different conclusions than if you view them through a wonder-to-behold perspective. Okay, here's the first thing that has been discovered in the last uh, under 20 years. Human brain isn't done developing until the mid to late 20s. I think like 27, 28, something like that. This is thanks to the invention and acceptance of the MRI. We finally got look, a look into live and healthy child and teenage brains. Didn't have that before. The entire medical and scientific community for hundreds and hundreds of years has believed, wrong, believed wrongly that the human brain was done developing on average by age seven. And then big shock, it wasn't done developing until the mid to late 20s. Uh, the two areas that are most significantly underdeveloped uh, in teenage brains, are the prefrontal cortex or the frontal lobes, it's right up here in your brain. Here's just a partial list of the things that that part of your brain is responsible for. Decision-making, wisdom, prioritization, impulse control, planning, empathy, organization, focus, you could pretty easily say, hey, describe teenagers. There's your list, right? <laughs> Can you see why I'm asking you, are they a problem to be solved or one to behold? Because what so many people do when they hear this is they say, oh, of course, this is just confirmation of what we've always known. Teenagers are broken and incapable. We should treat them like children process called infantilization, and we should isolate them, and we have done that. Our culture is in a uh, way, way deep into a massive pendulum swing where we isolate teenagers, and they have to spend, the average teenager spends zero time with adults in the world of adults, and it's because we, we isolate them and treat them like children, at, which is counterproductive to our goals has real-world ministry implications for you and I and our churches. We've got to figure out how to not treat them like children, but instead to integrate them into the life of the church, and we've got to figure out how to not exclusively isolate them and never have them develop some sense of spiritual identity anchoring into the congregation, not just a youth ministry. Another part of the brain that's underdeveloped in teenagers is the, are the temporal lobes. They're right here on the side of your head. And the temporal lobes are responsible for, uh, among other things, emotional understanding and interpretation. Poor teenagers, man, they, they got a double hit on understanding emotions. 
because they have this brand new abstract thinking ability that takes you know, 10 years to develop. So they're not very good at understanding and, and interpreting emotions because of that. And then the part of their brain that's specifically processing that is also underdeveloped. So kids walking around his house, mopey. Mom is like, why are you, Brian, why are you always so mopey and down? I don't know. Is probably a genuine and honest answer not trying to dodge the question. And then mom says, this is nothing against mom, I love moms. Just, you've heard, you, this is a stereotypical scenario. Then mom said, don't you know, these are the best years of your life. It will never get better than this. And Brian's just thinking, I'm screwed. <laughs> Brian, Brian, I made him Brian, then I changed him to Ryan. Another thing I want to tell you about, Neuron proliferation and pruning. Ooh, I used fancy words on my screen. You can just, on my notes, it just says neuron growth. I don't know what happened there. <laughs> there is a crazy thing that was discovered uh, with the MRI. Your brain had, it functions based on neurons, which are like the electrical wiring of the brain. You have billions of neurons in your brain. And the number of neurons you have uh, bundled together, we refer to them as neural pathways, so the information superhighways of the brain. Uh, you have a, the same amount of them from, like I'm gonna draw a, a chart here. You have them like from birth all the way into your 70s, they start to trail off. I got 10 more good years. <laughs> Except for one exception. This is so fascinating to me. About two years prior to puberty, so think nine-ish, there is a growth spike in, neuro, in neural development and new neurons are added. Millions of additional neurons are added. Millions more than will be there for the rest of life. At puberty, a toggle switch is tripped and the process reverses itself. And over the next four years, that same quantity, millions, are eliminated. So think 11, to 15, 11 to 16, junior high, middle school, and maybe the first year or two of high school, millions of neurons are eliminated. Back to the same amount. So the chart looks like billions, 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 spike, pruning, billions for the rest of life till 70, okay? The fascinating thing is how those neurons are chosen for elimination. It is not just the same ones that were added, and not at all. Instead, it's those that are significantly used, get to stay in play for the rest of life. Those that are not used, get eliminated. This is why uh, somebody who moves, say, from a Latin American country to uh, Orange City, Iowa, uh, at 12 will lose their accent that they came with. Somebody who moves at 15 will keep the accent of their birth for the rest of their life. It happens right in that, right in that phase. This is why if you wanna be a world-class cellist or soccer player, you have to be playing before your young teen years. 
It's not that you couldn't get really good. If I decided right now to start playing cello, I could get really good if I applied tons and tons of work to it and studied under people who knew what they were do doing, had discovered maybe that I had some natural talent, but I could never become world class because my brain can't get wired for it today in a way that it needed to be then. Does that make sense? Now, I don't just tell you this because I think it's interesting scientific stuff. This has practical ministry implications for you and me. If you and I play a role, <coughs> not the primary role, certainly, but if we play a significant role potentially in the hard wiring of teenage brains for a lifetime of faith, how are we stewarding that opportunity? That's the question that this uh, learning brings to me. So many approaches to youth ministry about filling teenage heads with the correct answers. We might call it orthodoxy. I'm pro-orthodoxy, pro yay. But if our desired outcome is just that kids can repeat back the correct answers while they're teenagers, then that might have some value, but what we're doing in that in terms of hardwiring their brains is hardwiring them for a lifetime of being able to re respond with the correct answers that an authority figure has told them. If instead we help them develop the ability to wrestle with questions and to pursue truth, then we hardwire their brains for a lifetime of wrestling with questions and pursuing truth. And that seems to be better stewarding to me than a banking model. One more thing I want to tell you about in my last couple minutes that we've just recently discovered uh, about teenage brains called the anterior cingulate and its relationship with faith. So three parts of the brain that you need to understand for this. The prefrontal cortex I told you about already, that's responsible for logic and rational thought. Yeah. Back here at the stem of your brain, where right above where it connects with your spine, is a little tiny uh, thing, the size and shape of an almond called the amygdala. If you want to spell it, it's A-M-Y-G-D-A-L-A, -A -A, amygdala. The amygdala is the fear center of your brain. It's uh, considered a very old part of your brain. All animals have it. Only humans have the prefrontal cortex. Those two parts of your brain, logic and rational thought, uh, and the amygdala with fear, they don't communicate well. They don't coordinate well. And normally one overrides the other. Just why you can pay money to go to a haunted house and know that it's fake and I nothing's gonna happen to me, but that guy comes running at you with the fake chainsaw and you freak out because your amygdala overrides your prefrontal cortex, okay? The anterior cingulate is like a blanket right behind your prefrontal cortex, and it acts as both a communication hub or a switcher between the other two. So here's the logic and rational thought of the prefrontal cortex. Here's the fear of the amygdala, and then this sexy part in the middle, that is the anterior cingulate, and it works like this, like a fulcrum in a balance. But what's the new learning from some leading neuroscientists is the relationship between those three parts of our brain and faith. Which one of those is the most highly developed will accurately predict the 
to feel the tone of your faith. If you have a highly developed amygdala, if you let fear run rampant in your life, you will have a fear-based faith. This kind of makes sense, right? One that is probably legalistic, trying to avoid the wrath of an angry God. If you have a highly developed prefrontal cortex, you will have a logical and rational faith that you can explain well, but they say lacks compassion. If you have a highly developed anterior cingulate, you will have, get this, the, the ability, you develop the ability to understand and experience God as personal, compassionate, and other than yourself. I'll say that again because it's so important. If you have a highly developed anterior cingulate, it develops the possibility, the potential for you to understand and experience God as personal, compassionate, and other than yourself. And as you move into that, to develop the compassionate ability to notice the needs of others and respond to them. I want that. I'll tell you, the times that I blow it in youth ministry, if I could add them up and sort them into categories, the vast majority of them, the vast majority of them are times that I lacked compassion. So if I'm going to be more effective, not only in my own like thriving as a follower of Jesus, modeling an authentic life in front, uh, uh, with Jesus in front of teenagers, but also in how I lead others and respond to others, I need to bulk up my anterior cingulate. I need some reps. And how do we do those? Well, this is part of the crazy discovery. They discovered how to grow your own anterior cingulate. The number one way, by the way, these neurologists who discovered this, not Christians. The number one way, surprise them, you could tell in their writings that they even weren't all that excited to report this. <laughs> number one way to develop your interior cingulate is uh, through prayer. Yeah. Prayer and meditation, they would say. Okay. Um, the number two way, it's a big drop. Number one is way high on the list, and there's about eight items. Number two is a big drop down, but it is in the number two spot. Their terms for it is spiritual singing, what we might call worship. They did find that you can't just listen to it. That has no impact. You have to, it has to be intoned, in other words. Even if you are pitched, tone deaf, and, and, and monotone, if you are expressing words of worship to an other God, that develops your interior cingulate. These two things, worship or prayer and meditation and worship, if you do those six days a week for 10 minutes a day, you can grow the size and strength of your anterior cingulate by 50% within two months. And man, when Paul talks about the renovation of our minds, right? This, this is it. We are invited by our amazing creator who, who sees us as a wonder to behold, not as a problem to be solved. We're invited into the restoration of our own brains to partner with our creator on the ongoing recreation of our minds. 
and to help teenagers do the same. I tell you this last anterior cingulate bit for two reasons in terms of implication. Let's get our teenagers on the road to building their interior cingulates, right? Helping them experience what prayer and meditation uh, looks like. How does it work? Um, man, I'm telling you, it, side research is that, you know, anxiety has become one of the key problems for teenagers and d developing a practice of meditation is a direct way to uh, uh, affect that. So let's help them experience this and practice it and maybe even more important, let's practice it ourselves so that we can more effectively lead, lead teenagers uh, in the pursuit of Jesus. Okay, that's me. Thank you.